This is the Early Childhood Research Podcast, and you're listening to episode 19. Welcome to the Early Childhood Research Podcast, where we tell you how the latest research can help in your home and in your classroom. Welcome, I'm Liz, the host of the Early Childhood Research Podcast, and today we're talking to educational consultant and family therapist, Laura Fish, about flipping the concept of classroom management into a focus on child development. In other words, the benefits of being less concerned with rules and procedures and more concerned with tuning in to each of our kids in a more personal way. The transcript for this episode and a link to Laura's website can be found at lizesearlylearningspot.com. Just click on the podcast tab and look for episode 19. Laura started out 20 years ago as a preschool teacher, then became a mental health consultant for public, private and Head Start early education centres. This included partnering with child welfare and special education departments on behaviour support services for special needs or at-risk children. For the past seven years, Laura has been training early childhood teachers and coaches on the evidence-based framework called the Teaching Pyramid. Laura looks at education and child development through the lens of interpersonal neurobiology, which in simpler terms means the belief that we are who we are because of our relationships. Laura is based in San Marcos, California, and if you're interested in her work as a therapist or educational consultant, you can find out more about her and her work at her website, laurafishtherapy.com. Now on to the interview. Laura, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Thanks so much for chatting with me. Thanks for having me, Liz. I'm a big fan of your podcast, so it's exciting to be on. The term classroom management is widely used in education, but I know you're not a fan of that phrase. Can you explain what it is about that term, about classroom management, that concerns you and what you think is a better alternative and why? Oh, sure. So the way we speak about something, the words we use, impact how we think, feel and behave. So if teachers are focusing on managing the classroom, they tend to be in a reactive frame of mind. They're scanning for what is going wrong and trying to fix it or manage it. And if you're always scanning for danger, looking to manage, looking to fix, you are vulnerable to feeling overwhelmed, helpless, and burned out because it's where you're casting the spotlight of your attention is on problems. So I encourage teachers and parents alike to continue to scan for safety. We do want to keep our kids safe, but we remember to balance that out with also looking for what's going well when you are scanning. So this requires adults to reframe their role from one of managing behavior to that of developing the child's skills. What skills can we teach children to promote social, emotional, and academic growth as well as prevent challenging behavior? In this way, adults may remain in more of an open, receptive frame of mind, seeking to teach versus manage. So the focus is on child development versus classroom management or home management even. And the funny thing is when teachers or parents do shift in this way, their classrooms end up being managed because they are teaching children the skills they need to prevent the teachers from having to manage them so much in the first place. 
Mm. And the other big benefit for this is teacher stress or parent stress can decrease over time because you don't feel like you're constantly putting out fires. So what you're saying is that when we think about it as classroom management, it puts us in a a negative framework of thinking instead of the positive? You got it exactly, Liz. And the way we think, the intentionality, the way we start to frame things, our stance, either in the classroom or in the home, absolutely sets up what we are going to see, how we are going to feel, how we are going to behave. So it's a little, it's a little bit just sort of a, a reframe, a trick to get you into a more open, receptive mindset. It doesn't mean you're not looking for safety. It doesn't mean that your classroom won't be managed, but it means that that's not your, what you're going to set yourself up for. It's child development versus classroom management. Right. Yeah, it's amazing how that seems to shift for teachers and parents alike. Mm. So in your role as an educational consultant, you talk a lot about attunement, that teachers need to be attuned to their kids. What does this mean exactly? And what are the long-term benefits of being attuned? When I encourage teachers or parents to engage in attuned communication with their children, it can simply mean that the adults literally tune into the child's perspective as they engage with them. This is a new concept for some people, perspective taking. So what is the child thinking, feeling, sensing, imagining in this moment? Be curious, slow down, tune in. It goes beyond just paying attention to a child. People, people throw that around, well, I'm paying attention to the child. It's more than that. It's engaging fully with openness, receptivity, and focal attention. So we're not time splitting. So in the classroom, it's not so much um, a problem with devices. That's more of a parent thing where they're splitting their time with the computer or the phone or all our devices. And we do have to use our devices. But that's not a, we're not attuned to children when we're communicating them or connecting with them and splitting our time, time sharing. But in the classroom, it can be very difficult because there's typically one teacher mm. or three teachers maybe here in the States with 24 kids. Or if you're in K through whatever, it's one teacher. So it's really hard to have that attuned communication. And the more we have that, the less challenging behavior that that we have. So one possible long-term benefit of this type of attuned stance is that children have the opportunity to feel seen, heard, and understood. Being with an attuned other helps them develop a sense of belonging and significance, which is tantamount to well-being in children and adults, quite frankly. Mm. So a trusted connection has a chance to be fostered, which will allow adults then to guide children and scaffold their learning. In this way, attunement is at the core of secure attachment, and it's a framework for communication between adults and children. Mm. One of my mentors, uh, Daniel Siegel, uses a beautiful phrase to describe adults' role with children. He says we help them, quote, enter the world of knowing the mind. Mm. Yeah, it's a a beautiful, elegant way of describing children becoming intrapersonally attuned or tuning into their own thoughts, feelings, sensations, images. And this ability to tune into oneself really begins and develops from interpersonal attunement or having adults engage with you in this manner. 
That's quite interesting. Yeah. I'm thinking about you have one teacher in a class and so sometimes it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. You see your class as a whole and it's really difficult sometimes to get those one-to-one relationships. And so what's really great is the coaching work that I do in the classroom is encouraging teachers that you don't even need to have the one-to-one time. And in fact, especially for the preschool children, one of the big things we're trying to teach is peer-to-peer connection. So how can you build, be attuned with children in groups, in small groups? In large groups, it's harder. So Mm -hmm. say it's a teacher, one teacher with 25 kids at, say, circle time. Mm -hmm. Really difficult to have a tuned communication. Still possible, Mm -hmm. but it, it can happen in just the small groups. So considering the perspective of the three or four kids with you, being curious about what's going on with them, being asking the open-ended questions, mm. reflecting, narrating, it doesn't have to be one-on-one. So you're saying that if teachers practice attuned communication with their kids, if they're really getting to know who their children are, that that actually mm-hmm. helps the children understand themselves? Absolutely. So one of the things that I focus on is the internal narrative of the child. What's the story children are learning about themselves? Mm. Because there's a lot of research out there that shows that children that sort of lose focus, if they're not making gains in school, and then in the worst case scenario, say they get in trouble and end up in some sort of adolescent juvenile delinquency situation, a lot of times you can track back that the story they have about themselves is very negative. And so when we're actually helping children tune into their strengths, tune into their likes, their dislikes, even tuning into, you know what, it's really hard for me, this math, but I'm working on it. I try. Mm -hmm. I do my best. So it's not that we never focus on struggles. It's just that we are tuning in with openness and receptivity to all of it, asking about it. It puts children in the position of casting their gaze inward And then it helps them when they have that sense of themselves to also connect with others. Mm. Another long-term benefit of attuned communication that comes from the field of interpersonal neurobiology, which is also the field that Daniel Siegel created, suggests that attuned communication is one of the functions of the prefrontal cortex, which is believed to be the executive function center of the brain, which is responsible for myriad functions in the mind, brain, and the body but notably the ability to plan, initiate, organize, carry out tasks while managing emotions, resolving conflicts, and shifting gears when necessary. These are executive functions. So when adults are engaging in tuned communication, children are given the opportunity to develop this important area of the brain by exploring their minds, Mm. where they think, feeling, deciding as they play, as they come up against challenges, as they try to carry out their plans. So activating the prefrontal cortex through attuned communication will help the child build the integrative fibers in the brain to assist with these skills. I really like this concept of helping a child have a positive mental view of themselves. Mm. So many of us look at the negative within our own selves. I know that within myself. I'm sure a lot of adults feel that as well. And the thought that as a teacher, we can help change that that self-discussion that a child has about themselves. That's a really powerful message. Absolutely. So Len Vygotsky was quoted as saying, uh, thought is language turned inward. 
And it's really galvanized me to be circumspect about how can I support teachers and parents in taking a look at how they're communicating with children. And a lot of times I get pushed back on that by saying, like, you're just spoiling the child. All you want to do is validate the child. That's not true. Um, we do want to help children look at all aspects of their behavior, their strengths, their the things that they're not good at. But foundationally, we want children to feel good about themselves. Mm. Jay Nelson, the author of Positive Discipline, also said, uh, where do we get the crazy idea that children need to feel bad in order to do good? It's just <laughs> not true. It's just not true. She's brilliant. She said it years ago, and she's written over 20 books about all of that, but a positive discipline. But the neuroscience is backing her up. We do better when we feel better. And so that internal narrative comes from the adults that we have in our lives. And then later on, also, from ourselves and what we cultivate, what we grow, mm. what we think about ourselves, and then from our peers. Right. You also place a great emphasis on contingent communication. What does that mean? Contingent communication is one aspect of being attuned. There's a lot of ways to be a t to engage in attuned communication, but contingent communication is one aspect. And again, I just described it simply that communication is directly related to or tied to the child's experience in the moment. So what you say is contingent upon what the child is saying, feeling, or conveying to you. Right. So contingent communication is, is an umbrella term for many communication strategies that adults use every day. And for teachers, we talk a lot about using reflection, narration, open-ended questions, mm. acknowledging or validating emotions, and then acknowledging appropriate behavior that you want the child to repeat. Mm. So... I'll give you an example from an observation recently in a preschool classroom. It's kind of a pedestrian example, but it's fun. So a little girl came in. She was super excited to be in the preschool program, and she was super excited to be there. She runs up to her teacher, and she said, I had pizza for dinner last <laughs> night. And the, and, the, and the teacher says, pizza for dinner? You look excited about that. And the child says, yes. It was pepperoni and cheese, and I didn't give any to my sister. And the teacher says, you love pepperoni and cheese. What happened when your sister didn't get any? And the child says, well, my mom gave her some, and we ate the whole pizza. The teacher says, you ate the whole pizza? How did you feel after? She says, good. I played with my toys then. So very, very pedestrian. It's about pizza and everything, mm. but it's an beautiful, rich example of the teacher being attuned to the child mm. using contingent communication, such as reflection. So she just said back what the child said to her, acknowledging the child's possible feeling state. You look excited. Asking open-ended questions. What happened? How did you feel? And then she just kept her communication with the child contingent upon the child's perspective the whole time, which encouraged the child to tell the story of her experience. Yeah, that's interesting to me because when you're in early childhood, they are often the most common kind of conversations the kids come in and they, and they, or they just randomly go off on a on attack and as the teacher we have to make the choice do i just cut off at that sentence and go back to what we're learning or what we're doing or do i extend that conversation yeah and sometimes it can feel like you have to be careful not to rob peter to pay paul i mean we do want to help children with focal attention and to gauge in meaningful learning by going deeper with what's at hand. 
But this example, this very pizza conversation is building the integrative fibers in the brain and so much more. The child's feeling felt, she's feeling seen, she's feeling heard, she's feeling her story matters, she mm. matters. And then she's also building the integrative fibers because she's building interpersonal achievement. She's learning more about herself. She's integrating that story that happened the previous day and interpersonal attunement with an adult. There's so much happening in the brain in just mm. that simple communication. And the other thing that reminds me of is, you know, when we have, we have always have children in our class who are quieter, who are shy or who don't like to talk much. And if we're really thinking about this kind of communication, we're going to be even more on the lookout for any chance we can take to develop any kind of conversation with these children. You got it, Liz. And I don't know about this in Australia or other parts of the world, and you can tell me, but here in the States, we're very focused on school readiness, school readiness, getting kids ready. And many times, yeah, many times for teachers, uh, the first thing they're thinking of is the academic piece. It's so important, right? Letters, numbers, Mm. concepts, science, technology, engineering, math, STEM learning, all important. But we know that social emotional is the how of learning that supports the what. So that these type of attuned communication interactions using contingent communication can help build the parts of the brain that the children need to learn that science, technology, engineering, math, Mm. shapes, letters, numbers. So it's a both and situation. So everyone always says it's a sort of a throw off comment. It's all about relationships. It's about attuned relationships. Mm. It's really important. Mm. There's a lot of pressure from on top, of course, for teachers to do all that academic stuff. So finding that balance is difficult. But with attuned communication, I suppose you're taking every moment that you can to get back relationship time with children. It's really just foundational. It's the core of learning, development, growth. I just really love what neuroscience has given to our field because a lot of times, and I know I felt this as a preschool teacher, I felt that pressure. I mean, even from mm. parents, right? Where's the homework? Where's right. the worksheets that right. you're doing? And right, and we were, and we were play-based. And yeah. I, I knew intuitively, I mean, this was 20 years ago, I knew intuitively it was good. And, you know, we had, we had research to support it. But now there's just a plethora mm. of research that says children learn through this play. They learn through the richness of their experience, their stories, um, the connection with adults. And those are the building blocks. You'll build the parts of the brain that will later help them go deeper with numbers and letters and patterns. Because if they don't feel secure and if they don't feel like they are in a place where people actually care for them, they're going to block off those learning centers, aren't they? Absolutely. The trust and the connection opens children up to be in the learning stance. Just like I was saying earlier that if teachers are scanning for what's going wrong, if teachers are trying to manage, they're not in an open receptive stance themselves. So we want everybody to kind of be in this place. And we can't be there all the time. We go in and out. But best practice is what we're hoping for for children and for Mm. the adults. Most teachers have their own mental toolkit for managing kids. Methods that we've used over the years that we stick to because they're familiar or because they seem to generally work okay. In your experience, how flexible are teachers to adapting their management approach? How difficult is it to reframe how we think about the kids in our class and how we intentionally alter our daily interactions. 
Great question. Change can be challenging for adults, even when they think what they're doing isn't working. So teachers will come to me and say, help me, Laura, this isn't working. Mm. So that you would think, okay, great, they are primed, they're ready to open up and change. It's still challenging. When they feel the strategies they are using are working, obviously it can be even harder to scaffold their growth and encourage them to try on new approaches. Because life is about habits. And teachers have some habits, just like everybody, mm. for how they engage with kids, what they believe is working um, or they're comfortable with. So they don't want to let go of them. A lot of teachers are using strategies that I like to call shame and blame strategies or punishment mm. strategies to manage children. And they might find it really hard to reframe their approach into developing the child, going back from switching from management to developing. Mm. And by shame and blame, it doesn't have to be what people might consider really harsh mm. language. What I mean by shame and blame is language I constantly hear in the classroom, such as you aren't being friendly, you aren't sharing, that's not being mm. nice. You aren't listening. You aren't being safe. So over time, this type of narrative, again, this type of language, may get internalized by the child. And you can see how such messaging would deflate a child's sense of mm. self. All the messages about how I'm doing it wrong, I'm not good. And adults think this is helping the child sometimes because they feel it manages the classroom or the home. So in the work I've done for the past decade with an approach called the teaching pyramid really builds upon this idea that we want to avoid harping on the child for what they're not doing well and instead focus on teaching the child what to do instead. So it takes a, a, a really knowledgeable coach who, who's tapped into the latest findings in the field who also has good interpersonal skills to work with teachers or therapists with parents to really help them explore brain development in children and help them understand the brain and mind reasons why attunement and communication are important approaches and why directions and corrections and reminders and punishment may actually impede slow down the development mm. of children and thus the management of classrooms. Right. So are there traditional classroom management practices that we should keep in our toolkit? I'm assuming you're not suggesting that we throw all our traditional methods away. No, definitely not. Classroom practices in general that are focused on child development, which includes discipline, can stay. Absolutely. The important piece is for teachers and parents, they may need to consult with someone to vet those practices in order to make sure they actually are not relying just on habit, what they've always done, because that might not be in alignment with what neuroscience tells us is in the best interest of the child's brain and mind. In the States here, we have assessment tools such as the ITERS or the ECHRs or the CLASS tool that are intended to help early childhood education staff design their classrooms to promote social-emotional development, academic learning, and prevent challenging behavior. So I'm not suggesting they throw it all the way, but things like telling a child you aren't being safe, stop hitting, no running, using timeout, or having one of those behavior management systems that are like, they look like a stoplight. They're like green, yellow, red. Right. Yeah. They are actually reactive versus proactive. Yeah. They're managing versus teaching. And over time, all of these can actually be, be deleterious to the child's developing sense mm. of self. They don't teach a child what to do instead. They just simply point out what they're doing mm. wrong. So I typically tell teachers when they kind of bristle at that, because again, this is a lot. I was taught all of those things. And the teachers are not bad people. They're doing what they mm. know. So it's just inviting them to, 
to learn something different and make that shift, which can be difficult because it's not a habit yet. It asks them to go uh, into a different place for themselves sometimes. But I've used the parallel process. I said, if I came into your classroom and I just pointed out all the things you were doing wrong, I said, stop yelling. <laughs> your circle's not engaging. Your transitions are too long. Your lesson isn't interesting. <laughs> and then I put them on yellow or red right. until they were a, quote, better teacher. How would they learn what to do instead? Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading once from, I think she was a blogger and her child was in a class where they did that and her child came back feeling really bad about herself and that was when it hit her. Oh my gosh, I shouldn't be using this in my classroom because look what it's done to my own child. I think that's a beautiful example. I think when it hits home like that, it's really powerful. And if people are doubting, they should do some research about it. I've had children in my private practice with trichotillomania, pulling out their eyelashes and eyebrows over the stress of those systems. I've read the research about the anxiety that it can promote. And one of the problems with the systems, there are multiple, but one of the things, if you just go into a classroom that has that, watch the teacher. The teacher is not able to use the system with how it's intended. It's, I still don't like them, even if you could, but they can't because you can't possibly be monitoring 24, 27, 35 kids sometimes and see every single time. If they're on yellow, you're not able to see every single thing they mm. do to bring them back down to green right. or to put them up to red. And what typically happens, the child who's on the red or on the yellow stays there for a really mm. long time. And the teachers miss many, many times that they could be brought down mm. to green. And it, yet it isn't even really clear what to do to bring. Is that a green behavior? Or is that a yellowish green mm. behavior? So there's just they're super problematic. But the lived experience for the child is it can really promote anxiety. And it gets them to focus on I have to be perfect. Mm. So there's not this mindset of a growth. There's not a growth mindset. It's not that I am trying. I'm not there yet. It's the be there now. And that's not fair to kids. One issue I have with that is that it's much easier for some children to be on green and for other kids it's almost an impossibility. And so you're making things much more difficult for the children that actually need a bit more flexibility. It's just like with academics, some kids find it easy and some kids find it really, really difficult. So are we really seeing our children for who they are because they can't all fit into one way of doing things? You got it. It's punitive, it's shame and blame, it's punishment. It's not child development, it's child management, and I don't even think it's effective as a management mm. tool. I, it's not just me, it's the research thing. Yeah, because I'm sure teachers try to do it in a way that's positive, but unless you're in the mind of that child who's nearly always on orange or red, do we really mm. see that it's, it's upsetting them so much or are they just pretending they're fine with it? Or perhaps they start acting out even. Absolutely, no question. Mm. A real life example is my nephew's teacher uses that. And I couldn't remember, I can't remember if she used it in kindergarten or first grade. Everyone was real excited that he was on green. But then asking him, what did you do to be on green? Mm. I don't know. You know, I don't even know. Mm. They don't even know. It's not really relevant to the child. They just know there's this thing out there that they're trying to achieve. And they can't even describe to you what it means. So, yeah. Um, I, yeah, so we're not even using the tool the way it should be used. And there's much better tools. Right. I mean, look, if we want to teach children to be quote unquote on green, let's teach them what those behaviors are and let's give them a path to get right. there. And like you said, if we're, if we're practicing full inclusion, if we're saying everybody is in our classroom, the path for one child is going to look different from a path. Yes, exactly. Than the path for another yeah. child. So we have to be very circumspect mm. about that. 
So if I want to be more attuned to my kids, but I'm worried that I'll only keep it up for a week because, you know, often that's what our intentions are, <laughs> what actions can I take to try and keep myself accountable so that I keep at it for the long term, like to keep moving forward with this approach? My suggestion always for teachers or parents to have lasting change is you have to really focus on first versus second order change. So first order change is you do something because someone told you it's a good idea. Mm. You listen to a podcast <laughs> or you went to a training or someone seemed to know what they were talking about. So you said, I'm going to try that. But you don't really understand the how or the why. You don't really understand exactly the meaning behind it or you think you might but you really you might jump to try now you can try get it out there start trying but keep in mind that you really want to marinate in it you want to figure out what it is why it's important how does the in, in the case of attunement and contingent communication how do those concepts promote social emotional development and prevent challenging behavior so See where it may bump up also against your values, perceptions, and beliefs. Mm. Because in my experience as a coach to teachers and therapists for parents, change is thwarted or stops completely if an adult tries on a new strategy but does not believe in it. It simply won't last. He or she will revert to habit, whatever's comfortable, what's believed to be effective. An easy example in the field of early childhood is visual schedules. Many teachers put up visual yes. schedules because they've been taught, right? They think they should do it. So this is first-order change. Great. Get it up there. But when I go to classrooms, the teachers typically don't either use them consistently or they can't tell me how using them promotes social-emotional development and prevents challenging behavior. In other words, they don't know the why behind using them. And they often only know one way or one reason to use them. When visual schedules can help promote a range of skills, there's a range of ways to use them. So they haven't made a second order change. But this takes time for reflection. And time is something I hear over and over again Mm. is a challenge. Yeah. It really Mm. is. So is there any way to measure whether what we're doing in the classroom is having an effect? Absolutely. Myriad ways, formal and informal measurements. An informal way that I do it is when I go into a classroom, I literally close my eyes. I take away the visual stimulus and I listen. And I'll hear a lot of directions, corrections, reminders. It sounds like, remember, even in a nice voice, remember, use your walking feet. Only three children in the block area. Samuel, Samuel, you need to share. You aren't being very friendly right now. That's only for two people. Make another choice. It's the tone, the sound, the actual language in the classroom. Mm. The child living in a world of directions and corrections mm. or reminders or worse, in a world of no, don't stop. So in classrooms where the teachers are shifting towards teach me what to do instead, it will sound differently. So you can just informally just stop and listen. Mm. And then one simple strategy I recommend to teachers for increasing this attuned communication for measuring it is tune into anytime you're compelled to give a direction, a correction, or a reminder, Mm -hmm. try asking open-ended question instead. So if you want the child to wash her hands, say, before a meal, whether at home or at school, instead of saying, go wash your hands, which is a direction, Mm -hmm. try asking them, what do we need to do before we eat? Or instead of put all the toys away before we go outside, switch to, it's almost time to go outside. What do we do before we go? Mm. 
when you do this, not only will you salvage the relationship with the child because you aren't just the director corrector, but you're activating the parts of the brain that require the child to think. That's what open-ended questions do. Right. And so that's the way that they can monitor how many directions and corrections they give versus open-ended questions. And that's a way to measure contingent communication. Mm. That's a good idea because you don't realize just how much directions are coming out of your mouth. (laughs) Absolutely. And there's always formal assessments. I mean, I know, like I mentioned before, here in the States, we have the itters, the eckers, the class, other assessments that measure the quality of the early childhood education classroom. Those don't often use the actual terms contingent communication or attuned communication. The strategies they recommend are strategies to promote those concepts. Right. Sometimes in the classroom, when we're in a situation of high stress, so for example, you have a child who's biting and screaming and throwing things around the room, or even if they're just trying, we're trying to get our group from one place to another, it all seems much easier to issue orders and force compliance. (laughs) So how can we reframe our thinking so that we're more likely to stop and consider the specific children that are in front of us? Gosh, it's so important. You know, I think people who have never been in the classroom can't even imagine how stressful it can get for teachers. There's so much at stake. We want to keep the kids safe. We have licensing issues. There's so much pressure on teachers. So I have so much compassion for that. Um, And reframing thinking is, first of all, getting someone to validate that is really important. I think teachers really, really need that respect. And then helping them reframe thinking is indeed the first step and perhaps the hardest because our beliefs may be entrenched. We're tied to them and reframing can feel to adults like you're telling them what they are thinking, what they are seeing, what they are feeling and doing is wrong. This really has occurred to me in the last five, six mm. years of my work when I'm, I'm thinking, I'm trying to help. I'm just trying to help you to reframe. But implicit is in that is the suggestion. I'm not saying it overtly, but implied is, well, I've been doing it wrong then is what you're saying. Mm. So we really have to have compassion for teachers and parents about that. So I'm always mindful of this when I'm doing working mm. with them. You aren't wrong. We're working with humans, not Hondas. So there's no step-by-step manual. We have to be open and receptive to constantly updating our thinking, individualizing our approach based on the unique developmental trajectory of the child in front of us. And reframing is simply looking at the situation from another perspective as a first Mm. step. Again, it's another challenging piece because the teachers don't get a lot of this thinking reflection time and they, they are under pressure. But when you do engage, when you do do this, when you take the time to do this, that you are considering the child more from a humanistic contextualized stance, which opens you up to so many more possibilities. Mm. What do you think about teachers feeling feeling like they can't speak openly to their colleagues about struggles they're having in this area? Like, I feel like if your colleagues can support you and help you to think through these issues, so you have a particular child in your class that is really difficult and you feel like you're struggling to, to say, have that attuned communication. How important is it to try and develop those collegial relationships to feel like we're not alone in our classroom? Oh, my gosh. It's so necessary. It's a lifeline for teachers, isn't mm. it? I mean, we talk a lot about the parallel process. 
everything that we're giving out and doing for children, we really want staff to staff to do that. Mm. So do we have attuned communication with each other? Are we working on the relationships with each other? And absolutely creating that sense of safety, of trust, of connection. We're in this together. This is hard for all of us is really important. And it's also, you know, nurturing the nurturer, that's an important aspect of it. Because to do this work, we need to be really integrated. We need to be intact. It's incredibly challenging. So I often do trainings that are are parallel process trainings. How can we do this with each other, Mm, for sure? mm. Laura, it's been really fantastic talking to you today. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and experience with us at the Early Childhood Research Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Liz. It was my pleasure. That's it for our chat with Laura about the importance of really tuning in to each of our children individually. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes to leave a rating and review. It helps others find the podcast. Remember, you can find the transcript of this episode, plus the link to Laura's website, and also some infographics that summarize this information. You can find it at lizesearlylearningspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and look for episode 19. This podcast is part of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts by educators, podcasts for educators. To check out more in education, including other early childhood-focused podcasts, go to edupodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for joining me to learn more about early childhood education, and I wish you happy teaching and learning. Thanks for listening to the Early Childhood Research Podcast at www.lizesearlylearningspot.com.